Well, we are in our fourth week of this series that we're calling When the World Was Turned Upside Down. And today we are diving into one of the most significant events in human history. Um, this thing that we're doing, this series we're walking through, it's like a recovery mission. Um, we're going back and we're going to discover something today that I believe we've lost. I think we've lost perspective of it. I think we've lost a sense of it. And then we're dragging it back to the future and we're returning it to this time, to this place. That, that really is my hope for this. We want this to, to come to life in the here and now. Um, part of us being able to do that, though, is dependent on our capacity to see these people for who they really are, to see them clearly. Um, I want you to understand, and we talked about this the past couple of weeks, that Jesus made this promise. He came to them and he said, you're going to receive power when my spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. You guys are going to be this when you receive this power. Um, so they get this sense that something is coming. And so they waited. Jesus had said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. And as a result of that, they did. They waited. Uh, and the promise, as we'll see today, is actually fulfilled. And the fulfillment of that promise changes everything. It, it changes everything for them. The world is turned upside down. History is altered because of what it did to the people that Jesus was talking to. Something happened in them so that through them, the world would be changed. In fact, we, we've said this in the series, it's not that, that they turned it upside down, it's that they turned it right side up. They right-sided up the world because of what God was doing in them. But I want to be really clear about who it was that Jesus was speaking this promise to. Um, this is a historical fact that a small band of fairly uneducated men and women, they were marginalized, they were, they were irrelevant um, in this massive, powerful Roman Empire, that they would, in a relatively short period of time, become the most significant force of change in the empire and, consequently, empires for centuries to come. The question that you have to ask when you hear that is, how is that even possible? How is it possible? How could it happen that this group of people could do that sort of thing? What explanation could we give for this kind of change in human history? And we ask that question because when you look at the early church, these first Christians, they had none of the things that we think are essential to be what we would call a successful church today. Um, we can easily think about buildings. We think about money. We think about political influence or status we think about all of those sorts of things. When you look at the first Christians, they didn't have any of it. None of it was present. And yet the church exploded. And so you ask a question from a time like ours and, and say, why? How do you explain this phenomenon? And the answer centers on what we're seeing take place today. And in fact, um, when you read the book of Acts, something becomes very clear, something um, that is quite the opposite of what our culture tells us today. Rather than finding something in themselves, these people received something into their lives. Um, let, me, let me just make that really clear. Our, our culture and, and our pretty much all human cultures have this obsession with the self. We have this obsession with finding something within ourselves. It's just, it's just inside you. You just need to dig down and, and locate it there. But what we see in this group of people, the most influential group of humans to ever walk the planet, is that the answer to this question wasn't found in themselves and something they did, but rather in something that they received. They received something and it changed who they were. So the early church, it is this group of people who were ignited by the Spirit of God. Now, I love this quote from Vance Havner. He says this, he says, We're not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, 
but by the combustion within it of lives that are ignited by the Spirit of God. I love what he's saying there. Like, how do we change the world? Well, it's not being critical of it, and it's not conforming to it. It's living a life that is ignited, that you're, you're combustible in this environment because of the Spirit of God in your life. There, there's this, this transcendent energy that these people were walking in. They burned, but they didn't burn out. And so the question we ask, well, what was that? What were they filled with? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? We're, we're going to take a t- time today, and we're going to look at a particular day, a particular moment when everything changes and it's, it's this day that the church historically has called Pentecost. It's found in Acts chapter 2, and so if you have a Bible, you can open to that. If not, just follow on the screen with me. But we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses, and what I want to do is just read this together, and then after I read it, we're going to unpack it. We're going to talk about what's taking place here. So Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans how is it that we hear each one, of us, each one of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Polypia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they're filled with new wine. Um, This is so, so good. And there's so much in here. And there's so many questions that rise out of this. There's so much that we could talk about. But I want to frame this around four particular things as we move through this conversation. First, I want to talk about the power of presence. Second, I want to talk about the significance of location. Third, the radical inclusivity. And then finally, we'll close up with this great question to ask. Um, So let's start with the first one, the power of of presence. And and here's what's really interesting. Much of what we desire to understand about the Spirit of God descending on humanity is answered when we understand Pentecost. And specifically the Pentecost that was before the day that we read about in Acts chapter 2. Go back to, to verse 1 for just a second. You'll notice it says this. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So I want you to see that the day of Pentecost, it arrived. It, it comes on the calendar like summer comes. It's a day that, that people are waiting for. They expect it to come along. So I want you to understand there was already this thing, this holiday, this feast called Pentecost. It was already a day. It was already a thing, if you will. And so, so here's the question that rises out of that. What is it about this day that would cause God to choose it to pour out his spirit? Why did he do this On this day, was there some sort of reason? Is this a coincidence or is this on purpose? Once you see this, there's like a light bulb that goes on and things begin to make sense. So so let me just explain this. Pentecost for the ancient Hebrews was this ritual feast. It was a celebration that was outlined in one of my favorite books in the Bible, the book of Leviticus. Um, All the way back in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, it was outlined that people would honor this particular day. And there were two particular ways that you would celebrate um, Pentecost, two two meanings or messages or aspects of this. 
the original meaning of this was it was the Feast of First Fruits. And, and because the Jews were uh, an agrarian society, they would grow their fruits, they would grow their, their, their food, and then they would bring out the first part of the harvest and they would offer that to God. It was a way of saying thank you to God. Now, this happened 50 days after the Passover feast, which is where we get the Pente, the Pentecost. It's 50 days. So Passover happens, which, by the way, also corresponded and aligned with the crucifixion of Jesus. That's when that happened. Um, then there would be 50 days after Passover, then this feast called Pentecost. Now, also, the Jews began to recognize that it was about 50 days after Passover that God met with Moses on Mount Sinai and gave them the law and created this new people. He he constituted them as the people of God 50 days after the Passover in Egypt. So every year, for hundreds of years, Jews from all over the world would come to the city of Jerusalem on Pentecost, and they would thank God for the first fruits, and they would celebrate God coming down and meeting Moses and making them this new kind of people. That's what they were doing in Acts chapter 2. It's the feast of the first fruits, but it points to the future. Just like Passover was pointing to Jesus, all these years, Pentecost had been pointing to God's spirit and the formation of this new community, this new nation, if you will, this new humanity, the people of the third way, as we've begun to call them during this series. So I want you to notice something in verses two and three. It says this, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I want you to notice that there are two things that are described. There is wind and there is fire. Now, what's really fascinating about this is when you go back in the Old Testament and you see places where God is showing up, where his presence is being made known over and over again, we see the recurrence of wind and fire. When Job is visited by God, there's a whirlwind. Abraham, a burning torch. The, uh, the first Pentecost on Mount Sinai, there's both wind and fire. So everything about this moment is pointing to one thing, and that is that God is now present with his people. God is on the scene, and there is power in his presence, especially when you understand the significance of this second thing I want to frame this with, and that's the significance of location. Because this thing that we're seeing is, is, is a revelation, it's showing us something new. God is teaching us something. He's saying, I want you to see things in a new way. God is doing something new here. The, the location of God's presence is shifting. Um, this is so significant. Up until this point, it was all about the temple. The temple symbolized stability and continuity. By the way, that's something that a society like this one would have craved, they would have longed for. Um, they wanted something stable, want, wanting something they could hold on to. And as long as the temple stood, then the worship of Yahweh and their own security could continue. But the building, the temple could not move. And so that meant that everyone who loved God and wanted to worship God would have to come to his house. They would have to come to him, to this place. In fact, according to some scholars, it's known that the, the rabbis in Babylon were actually intellectually superior to the rabbis in Jerusalem, but because Jerusalem was so significant, they always submitted their authority because, well, that's where the temple is, and that's where the people are that are close to God. So, so everyone had this, this idea that that's where God was, except that during the writing of this, everyone knew it's where he wasn't. There was this deep sense like God has left the building. He's no longer here. In fact, the, the Pharisees during this particular era, 
they had this longing, literally, for the fire of God to return. And so they created an entire system around trying to manipulate God into coming back, to being present with his people. They were legalistic and religious and had all of these rules saying, if, if we just did all these things, then God would come back to us. But nothing happened. Then there's this Passover where a rabbi is crucified. And history tells us that at the crucifixion of Jesus, the veil in the temple, there was this veil that separated the holiest place in the temple from, from the people, that this veil in the temple that protected people from the presence of God, that it tore, but it didn't tear from the bottom to the top. It tore from the top to the bottom. And, and immediately there was this sense of God is not behind the curtain. And then 50 days later, when people would be celebrating meeting Moses meeting God, um, God's fire returns in this moment. All of this stuff is lining up. But God doesn't return to the old temple. He returns to this new temple, which is us. The new temple is us. By the way, this is where we get the language that the body is a temple. Um, by the way, the Spirit doesn't dwell in us because the body is a temple. The body is a temple because the Spirit dwells in us. In other words, um, it's not like you make your body something and then the Spirit enters in. The Spirit enters, and that's what makes your body a temple. What we are witnessing in the book of Acts is the decentralization of the Spirit of God. Now, God is everywhere. God is meeting all of these people in all of these places, and not only that, it tells us that there's an experience that human beings can have. There's this transcendent experience that's not just possible, but it even seems to indicate that it's necessary. Um, this, is, this is kind of an interesting thing for us to think about for a moment. But we've reached a time not long ago in human history when philosophers drew the conclusion that religion was coming to an end. In fact, um, Nietzsche famously said, God is dead. And um, it was a representation of an entire school of thought that that school of thought really believed that religion was this thing of the past. That They would say, well, back then you couldn't understand the natural world. You didn't know what was going on with science. Um, and so that forced human beings to come up with some sort of system or explanation for the world that they lived in. It was the only way that they could deal with reality. That's sort of what they would say. But then they would say, well, now we have science and we have logic. And we, we're, we're coming to this age where, where we don't need these religious trappings anymore. The more educated we get, the more enlightened we get, we shed our need for religion. And so, so what do we do? Now, this is really interesting, but this has happened on so many levels. We stripped Christianity of its transcendence. We gutted Christianity of the experiential part of what this is, of this reality beyond the known. We, we sort of eliminated that from our thinking. Miracles, resurrection, scripture, modern people aren't going to accept those sorts of things. And so our society has slowly been dismantling this, saying, well, is it really necessary? In fact, we would say today, we don't really need these primitive explanations for our past. We, we, can, we can sort of read those things with respect, but they, they're not for us. But do you know what else we've discovered? People still long for something transcendent. People still long for an experience, a connection with, with the divine. People want something more. They want to have a sense that there's something bigger than themselves. Human beings have this deep longing for a life that's connected to some story, some narrative that's more than just this one our culture is giving us or one that, that we're just trying to write ourselves. We want to feel more alive, more connected, more in tune than we did before. 
There's this hunger to experience the divine. It's this passion. It's this desire. And if it's not real, if, if the desire to experience something transcendent is not real, it's the only desire that you and I have as human beings that can't be satisfied. It's the only one that's fake. Every other desire we have, every other longing has some way of being satisfied. But this one, if it's not possible to be fulfilled, it's the only one, unless it's actually possible. See, our, our desires, even for an authentic experience with God, that desire is a desire that is placed within our hearts, and it can be realized in our lifetime. You and I can experience God. But how? Um, let me just say that being filled with the Spirit is not being filled with some sort of electricity. Um, being filled with the Spirit is not being um, touched by some sort of anonymous force. Because these men and women, when they're touched, when they're filled with the Spirit, they begin to talk. And when they talk, they talk about what has been revealed to them, things that they've seen, what the Spirit has shown them. In fact, if you notice in Acts chapter 2, they begin declaring the wonders of God. So being filled with the Spirit is not just some sort of electrical experience, like, like we just got goosebumps because we had this encounter with God, and maybe it makes your problems go away, maybe it doesn't. Um, you're having an experience with truth itself, which leads to something that I think we need to understand, that Christianity is neither rationalism nor is it mysticism. Um, it's far too mystical to be rationalism, but it's also far too rational to be mysticism. Um, and, and here's why. Christianity, when you really boil it down, is a deep experience. Christianity is an encounter. It is this emotional shaping encounter, a feeling encounter with a rational truth. That's what Christianity is. So, so when people are filled with the Spirit, they aren't just zapped in this moment and suddenly feel something. They're filled with truth. They're exposed to God's character. And by the way, what is God's character? Well, primarily, we know God is love. So when you and I are filled with the Spirit, we are experiencing truth and we are experiencing love. Being filled with the Spirit means now those two things begin to flow out of us out of us to others. There are truths that go beyond who you are. There are things you now know that you didn't know before, things you shared that are more wise than what you would have been able to share. And there's a love that is greater than any love you've known before and a love you can extend that is greater than any love you could have extended before. So, so the way that you know that the Spirit of God is moving is that there are truths that are bigger than you and there are new desires that are directing your life. You You've been shaped by wants and passions, and suddenly your wants and passions are being transformed by God's Spirit, and you begin to want and have passions for new things. It is this overriding truth, and there is this overriding love. Um, this week when I was rereading this passage, I was just considering the reality of God's Spirit coming down and giving us power. And I, and I began to realize, I thought, well, why, why do we need power? Well, I need power to do things that I can't do. If I need extra power, it's because I don't have it within me to take care of something. And so uh, I started thinking about that. What do I not need power to do? Well, I don't need power to be critical. I don't need anybody to help me get angry. I don't need anybody to help me be judgmental. That stuff comes pretty natural. In fact, um, let me share this, that a few years ago, I was um, in Washington, D.C. I was with my friend Kiha, 
And uh, we had rented bikes. I'd never been to the Air and Space Museum, and we had rented bikes, and we were riding around, you know, kind of the main central tourist area of D.C., and we went to the Air and Space Museum. And this friend of mine, Kia, he's friends with several astronauts, and so we're walking through all these amazing things that people have done and seen. And then we walked into one part of the museum where are the, there are these massive intercontinental ballistic missiles let me just explain. We've seen all these miracles that people have performed. You know, they've learned how to fly and launch rockets into the sky and land on the moon. And now we stand, and before us is this massive display of destruction. I'll never forget, as we were sort of taking all of this in, what Kiha said in that moment. In fact, I went back to my hotel and I wrote it down. He said this. He said, can you imagine if all of the energy we put into hating others and building weapons was spent on making peace and solving problems? how different the world could be. And then he said this, it's sad to think that this is what people would work impossible hours to accomplish. See, hate comes easy, but love takes power. When you are filled with the Spirit, there is a new love that redefines how you live towards others. You find yourself getting along with people you never imagined you'd get along with, loving people you never thought you'd be able to love, a community that you're a part of that's unlike any other community you've ever been a part of. That's where we see this third aspect come to life for us. There's there, there's this power of presence, then there's this reality of this new location of the Spirit of God. But then what we see in this passage is this radical inclusivity. Um, now, we're just at the beginning sketches of what we're going to see in full color as it relates to this throughout the book, but I just want you to see this. We have this moment, the wind rushes in and there's some sort of fire, God's presence is there. Then the disciples, 120 or so of them, began to speak, to be specific, in languages other than their own to the people who spoke those languages, the wonders of God. And then we read this in verse six. It says, and at the sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, uh, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Let me go back to the temple for a moment. The temple symbolized exclusion and division. There weren't just barriers between God and humanity with the, the temple veil, but there were also barriers among people, keeping certain groups out. Certain people weren't included in certain ways. In fact, there was a thing called the court of the Gentiles, where these people that we just read about, all of these people that were being included, they would have been sequestered. If they wanted to worship God, they had to go to this other place. They couldn't go fully in. But now God, broken out of the confines of the temple, now he signals something that is completely different, and it is this radical inclusivity. Not only that, I just want you to see he's validating all of the disciples. I think this is so important for us to see. Remember in the room where they were gathered, there were men and there were women. And now all of them, regardless of their gender, have become instruments in God's hand to proclaim his good works. And, and this list of people, who are hearing this message, they're from everywhere, every culture, every land. Um, I, I recently had a friend share with me that he had to come to grips with the reality as he was sort of thinking about his preferences and thinking about church. He said, 
I had to come to grips with the reality that heaven probably won't look like the inside of a black Baptist church. Not everybody's going to look like me or worship the way that I do. I want you to understand something, that up until this moment in history, everything had been monocultural. And now in an instant, and in his first act in this way, God creates this intercultural movement. The disciples, they're making a declaration with words of how good God is, but God is making a declaration himself by including all of these people. Suddenly, this is different. He's doing something new. He's creating a new nation, if you will, a new people, a new humanity on the very day that God's people are celebrating the first time that he did this. So so this isn't just informing us of how we live truth and love, but this is also showing us who we are perform truth and love with. This is showing us the new community. By the way, I want you to notice that conformity to some cultural norm was not this prerequisite of inclusion. The people of the third way, they are beautifully diverse, and they are radically inclusive. And, And God is concerned with the expansion of his people along these lines. Will we look like this? Which really brings us to to the final thing I want to talk about, and that's a good question. I I love this. Um, This whole thing happens, and then we read this in verse 12. It says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Such a good question and such a revealing question, and here's why. We assume, especially those of us who are Americans listening to this, We assume, you know, because we're part of the empire, that when God moves, there should be clarity and not uncertainty. Like, if God's doing something, well, then it should be clear, it should be concise, and we should know everything. We have a plan because we like control. We like concise. We like things to be clear. But I think it's particularly relevant during these times and this cultural moment that we acknowledge that certainty is an idol of our culture. And and, and that here... When God bursts on the scene, people are left with questions, not answers. They're looking at what's going on, and they're saying, well, what does this mean? What are the implications of this? And when I read this, that's what I'm asking. What does this mean? When we see God's presence poured out, when we see that the new temple is the human life, when we see the new mobility of God's love and his truth, when we see radical inclusivity of people and nations, we should be asking, what does this mean for us? What does this look like for us? See, I want to explain something about this series. I am not interested in us experiencing another Pentecost because just like the death and resurrection of Jesus happened and won't happen again, Pentecost is a moment in time. It happened once for all and it won't happen again. But what I am interested in is us living out now the implications of what we're seeing here. God is present, not just in here, not in a church building. God is present out there through you. Wherever you are right now, God is present. That's the reality of this. You have become the delivery system of God's truth and God's love. And he is forming us collectively together into this new, beautiful, diverse humanity that is wildly inclusive of the people around us. So I want us to take time right now. I want us to let this sink in. I know there's so many things we've just talked about. But the big thing is, what does this mean? What does this mean that all of this happened and is true? And how does it intersect with us today?
We're going to take a moment right now and spend some time just worshiping together, thinking together, processing this together, and then I'll be back and offer the benediction.
I'm gonna offer a bit of an unusual benediction for you today, and it's this. May you be discontent with the void of God's presence in your life. May you pursue his presence. May you welcome him near to you. And may you become a conduit of God's love and grace. And may you, with radical inclusivity, accept and love those around you in Jesus' name.